Welcome to Active Shooter, the podcast. After decades now of mass shootings, mass Mass shootings, mass shootings, we haven't found the answer. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. Thank you for listening to Active Shooter, the podcast. You are listening to Active Shooter, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. Authorities is trying to figure out what triggered this rampage. Investigators say the suspect randomly chose his victims and then shot them. Shots fired. We have one Overnight, a city gripped with fear after multiple shootings took place across Kalamazoo, Michigan. But now, residents waking up knowing the suspect is in custody. The shooting spree spanning 13 miles at three different locations. When Matt Mellon requested an Uber on the afternoon of February 20th, 2016, he didn't know that he would be riding with the devil. The man that picked him up would go on a deadly shooting rampage in the town of Kalamazoo, Michigan, killing six innocent people and severely injuring an additional two. After being pulled over and surrendering himself to police, the man would use the classic excuse of, The devil made me do it. If you've listened to our prior episodes, you know that the Active Shooter podcast team has taken the No Notoriety Pledge, and we will not be sharing the real name of the shooters that we cover. We will be giving the shooters a pseudonym and refer to them by that name throughout the episode. This will help in clearing up any confusion in the story, while remaining true to our pledge in not naming the shooter by their actual name. In today's episode, we will be referring to the shooter as... Daniel. At about 4pm, on the afternoon of February 20th, 2016, Matt Mellon requested an Uber to pick him up and take him to his friend's house, where he left his vehicle the night before. February 20th, I remember so vivid. It's like one of our first warm days, maybe in the 40s, and the snow was melting. It was the break from the winter. I just remember happy, smiling, laughing. That's what the sun does to you in the first warm days here in Michigan, you know, because you never know when the sun might be out again, (laughs) for sure. At 4.21 p.m., Matt was picked up by a man, Daniel who was driving a silver Equinox, just as the Uber application said he would be. Daniel had his dog, a large German Shepherd, in the back seat of his vehicle, so Matt had to sit in the front seat. Matt thought this was a little strange, as he was used to sitting in the back seat of the Uber vehicles he had previously ridden in, but he didn't think any more of it as he jumped into the front seat and buckled his seatbelt. Matt and Daniel made small talk during the first part of their ride. Matt later commented that Daniel seemed like a normal guy, and there was nothing suspicious about him. Daniel's phone began to ring, and he answered it, via the Bluetooth system in his car, so the conversation came through the vehicle speakers, and Matt could hear the conversation Daniel was having with his son. There was nothing unusual about their conversation. They made small talk, and his son asked Daniel if he was going to be home for dinner. Matt said the conversation was short, and lasted less than a minute. After Daniel ended the call with his son, everything changed. He immediately started driving erratically. He floored the gas pedal, 
drove into oncoming traffic and drove through a median. Daniel's driving obviously scared Matt, who repeatedly asked Daniel to stop so he could get out. However, Daniel refused to stop the car. Matt recalled that Daniel had ran through at least one stop sign and also sideswiped a Ford Taurus. Upon striking the Taurus, Daniel kept on driving, and he didn't show any signs of stopping soon. When Daniel finally decided to stop at a stop sign, Matt opened the door and tumbled out of the front seat. Matt was now in a residential area, and a witness heard the commotion from her house and saw Matt tumble out of the car. She ran outside and asked if he was okay. Pendleton Meadow, probably 75, 80 miles an hour down this road. I was bracing for impact, basically. I was pleading for him to stop at this point, because it was like, you just hit that car. And he's like, I didn't hit any car. We were going so fast, we just blew right through this. At one point, I even thought about hitting him. As Matt dialed 911, he told the witness about the terrifying ride he had just been on and wanted to make sure the authorities knew that there was a man driving recklessly on the streets of Kalamazoo. 911? I was just in the car with my Uber driver. He was weaving in and out of lanes. He sideswiped the car. And hey, what kind of car is it? Uh, Chevy Equinox. Do you want to talk to an officer, sir, or just want me to put out an alert over the radio? I wanted to just, I just wanted to report it, because I don't want someone sure. to get hurt. I, I understand I what you're saying, but I need to know if you want to talk to an officer, or if you want me to have an officer, just just be on the lookout for it. I just want to be on the lookout. And okay, thank you. Unfortunately, erratic driver calls happen quite frequently, and unless the police witness the erratic or reckless driving, there isn't a whole lot they can do about it. People call in erratic drivers. There's not much that the police can do unless the police witness that vehicle driving erratically themselves, which unfortunately in this incident, the officers did not see that vehicle. After Matt had finally made it to his vehicle and returned home, he filed a complaint with Uber about the careless driver. Unfortunately, at that time, Uber only had an email service that a passenger could use to file a complaint, but the passenger had to wait until someone contacted them back. At 4.34 p.m., Daniel returned home and contacted his wife, asking her to meet him at his parents' house. Before meeting his wife, he picked up another Uber ride request. Macy Eldridge submitted a pickup request for her boyfriend, who was at his own apartment and was requesting he be picked up and taken to Macy's apartment. Daniel arrived at the Meadows apartment complex and became angry because he got lost and couldn't find Macy's boyfriend's apartment. He was repeatedly calling Macy and raising his voice, telling her she had given him the wrong directions. He was calling me and telling me, like, saying I was giving him wrong directions and was getting upset with me and then had hung up on me. And I just kept texting and texting and I was like, are you there yet? Frustrated, Daniel hung up on Macy. As he was driving around the apartment complex, he spotted a young female who was walking with five children across the apartment complex through the playground area. The woman, Tiana Carruthers, was taking her seven-year-old daughter and some of her friends to another friend's apartment to play. I was in the house just finishing up a workout, you know, <laughs> trying to get fit for the summer. And my daughter was with some young ladies. And they came in like, Mom, 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 uh, we really want to go over uh, this girl's house named Joy. Can we go over her house? And so I was like, OK, I'll walk you over there. We'll go meet her mom. 
Daniel drove over to Tiana and asked if she was Macy. Tiana reported that he was very confrontational and rude towards her. When Tiana said she wasn't Macy, Daniel squealed his tires and drove away. A short time later, Daniel turned around and drove back to Tiana. Before Tiana could even say a word, Daniel rolled the window down and immediately started firing his Glock pistol at her. Tiana was first hit in the left arm. While she was running away from the bad man, she was shot in the right leg, which caused her to fall to the ground. While on the ground, still scrambling to get away, she was shot again in the left leg. The fourth shot hit her from behind and lodged in her liver. As Tiana was being shot, she yelled at the children to run. And I told the girls, run, no matter what, you run and do not come back. While falling to the ground, she continued to try and shield the children from being shot. Miraculously, not a single one of the kids was shot or even injured. Daniel then drove off, leaving Tiana to die on the sidewalk of the apartment complex. Luckily, numerous neighbors heard the commotion and ran out to see what they could do to help Tiana. As 911 was called and emergency services were en route, Tiana kept asking how the kids were and if they were okay. Her neighbors told her that the kids were fine and she shouldn't move as she was severely injured. Council County 911. Hello, I need an uh, ambulance. Please hurry up. Somebody fire shot. Send uh, like 9, 10 gunshots right outside our apartment complex. We need someone here. Okay, over on Hymeadows. <laughs> Please don't move. They coming, okay? Please don't move. Please don't move. When the ambulance and police showed up to help Tiana, she was able to tell them what had happened and gave a description of the man that had tried to kill her. It didn't take long for police to figure out that Tiana had just given the same description that Matt gave of the crazy Uber driver who picked him up about an hour and a half earlier. Dispatch even called Matt to confirm the description that he gave to them. Hello? Hi, did you call earlier about the Uber driver? Yeah, yeah, he picked me up from my house. Did you guys catch him? Or? Uh, no, we were just trying to see if he was involved in another... Okay. okay. I um I have his name from Uber. While the emergency crew was tending to Tiana and loading her into the ambulance, Daniel was still driving like a madman on the streets of Kalamazoo. He ran a red light, which caused him to be involved in another accident. However, Daniel did not stop after colliding with that vehicle. Kelmsley County, 911. Uh, hello. Uh, I needed an officer to come out. I was just involved in an accident where a guy ran a red light and hit me in the intersection. Daniel continued driving to his parents' house to meet his wife. He told his wife that he was involved in an accident and needed a different vehicle. When she asked what happened, he told her that the accident was caused by an angry cab driver and that the cab drivers in town were upset with Uber drivers for taking their business. Daniel went into his parents' house walked upstairs to his father's closet, and took his father's handgun, loaded it, and handed it to his wife. He told them they couldn't go back home because it wasn't safe there, and that she and the children couldn't go to work or school on Monday. Daniel told his wife that he couldn't tell her what he was about to do, or what exactly was going on, but she would hear about it later that night on the news. Before his wife could even answer, he was out the door. Daniel tried to leave in his Hummer. However, he couldn't get it started, so he went back inside and got the keys to his parents' Chevrolet HHR. He put the keys in the ignition and took off yet again. 
At 6.44 p.m., Daniel went to a local ATM and took money out. He then drove around Kalamazoo for about 30 minutes. At about 7.19 p.m., Daniel returned to his own home. While at home, Daniel left the Glock handgun he used to shoot Tiana Carruthers on his workbench in the basement. He then retrieved a different handgun and put on a bulletproof vest. Just minutes later, he was on the road again and on his way to pick up another Uber passenger. Once he picked up the passenger, he drove just under two miles and dropped him off at his destination at 8.18 p.m. The passenger said that Daniel acted completely normal. He then continued to pick up several more passengers, who all said that their drive was calm, and they carried on conversations and made small talk. He was listening to the radio, even singing along. Nothing seemed unusual about him. A B on the lookout, or BOLO, had been issued for Daniel's Silver Equinox, since this was the car he was driving when he drove Matt Mullen to his destination, as well as when he shot Tiana Carruthers. Little did the investigators know that Daniel changed vehicles and was now driving the black Chevrolet HHR. At 9.58 p.m., Richard Smith, his son Tyler, and Tyler's girlfriend Alexis stopped at a car dealership to look at cars for sale. Tyler had his eyes set on a bright blue pickup truck, and he wanted to stop to show his dad the vehicle. Richard and Tyler got out of their vehicle to get a closer look at the truck while Alexis was waiting in the back seat. Just a couple of minutes later, at 10.01 p.m., Daniel spotted the father-son duo standing outside in the dealership parking lot. Daniel pulled in and parked his car. Surveillance video shows that at 10.05 p.m., Daniel approached Richard and Tyler and asked them what they were looking at. Before either could even answer him, Daniel opened fire shooting 18 rounds in total, killing both Richard and Tyler immediately. Daniel then nonchalantly walked away, got back into his vehicle, and drove away. Luckily, he didn't know that Alexis was hiding in the back seat of the vehicle. Otherwise, she very well could have lost her life, too. Witnesses across the street from the dealership heard shots being fired, and when they saw what happened to be two men lying on the ground, one witness immediately called 911 and reported what she saw. County, Hi, we just drove by the Kia. Um, what, what road are we on? A 94 business, um, and a guy just shot some people in the parking lot. Just to advise, we do have a witness over at the Burger King parking lot. Did you see... Uh, who the person was that was shooting? Uh, no, it was a, I just turned because we heard gunshot. We could see the, see the smoke from his gun and hear it as we drove by. Well, we have several officers on the way. Okay. Okay, the one police officer is just pulling in. Once Alexis knew that the assailant was no longer in the area, she climbed out of the back seat, took Tyler's phone out of his pocket, and called 911 to report she just witnessed her boyfriend and boyfriend's father being murdered. 911 emergency. Um, yes, my boyfriend and his dad just got shot at the Siri Auto Group. Are they on the ground? Yes, and they're not moving. Okay, stay on the phone. Me, I gotta get officers in route. Okay. There was a police officer less than a minute away from the car dealership, so he was able to get to the scene quickly. It was too late for Richard and Tyler, however. They both lost their lives. It didn't take long for a swarm of officers and paramedics to show up at the dealership. Investigators immediately started getting the story of what happened from Alexis, who was now in complete shock. 
A police canine and his handler showed up to the dealership because Alexis couldn't be certain if the shooter walked up to Richard and Tyler and fled on foot or if he drove away. The canine was able to follow the shooter's scent for a short distance in the parking lot. This told officers that the shooter had gotten into a vehicle and drove away. I knew that my job when I got here was to get the dog out, and uh, we were told that he left on foot, so my job was to track him. We locked onto the scent relatively quickly. Uh, the odor was still fresh. It was not. It hadn't been that long since the crime had occurred. We tracked basically from where the victims were found, and we went right past the Kia dealership. The track ended there. We assumed he got into a vehicle. Investigators were able to get a hold of someone from the dealership who could pull the surveillance videos so they could see what happened. Once they were able to view the videos, police saw that the person that shot and killed Richard and Tyler left in a dark-colored Chevrolet HHR. However, the description of the man was the same description as the two prior attacks. It didn't take long for the police to figure out that their suspect was now driving a different car. They immediately issued another bolo, so people could keep an eye out for an HHR. Shooting Tiana and killing Richard and Tyler wasn't the end, though. Daniel was back on the road and was again driving aimlessly. He ended up in a Cracker Barrel restaurant's parking lot, about five miles down the road from the dealership. Daniel spotted several women getting into two different vehicles. Five friends just returned from a live performance show with Chinese acrobats and were meeting back at the Cracker Barrel to retrieve their vehicles after the show. Daniel walked up to Mary Lou Nye, who was sitting in her van in the driver's seat. Daniel didn't even hesitate. He walked right up to her window and shot her, killing her instantly. He then walked over to the vehicle next to Mary's van and shot each of the four people inside, Judy Brown, Barb Hawthorne, Mary Jo Nye, and Abby Koff, firing a total of 17 rounds at the Cracker Barrel. Kimsey County, 911. I'm at the um, Kalamazoo Cracker Barrel, and there's been gunshots in a, in a car. Okay, well, has anybody been hit? Two cars have been shot up. Officers were quick to respond to the shooting at the Cracker Barrel, too. When investigators approached the vehicles, Barb immediately tried to get out of the van, but officers quickly had her stay put and said they would help her out. They didn't realize just how injured Barb was, however. Mary, Judy, Barb, and Mary Jo lost their lives that night, and Abby was severely injured. At 10.24 p.m., Daniel fired his final shot at the Cracker Barrel. We had cell phones from all of the victims, and like we always do, we had removed them and set them on the roof of the car. And I still remember to this day, all seemed like they were ringing at the same time. His murderous rampage wasn't stopped by a police officer until 12.38 a.m., however. Because the police now knew what vehicle they were looking for, they were able to keep a close eye out for the Chevrolet HHR. Did you guys see him leave the scene already? I saw the black, it was a black HHR, dark blue HHR. Out of Officers stopped numerous black or dark-colored HHRs in an attempt to find Daniel. He was pulled over by police officers when they spotted him driving along the road. He wasn't driving recklessly or in any way that would catch a police officer's attention. Police just noticed the dark HHR and pulled him over. Daniel was arrested peacefully without any issue at all. In fact... The police were quite surprised that he didn't put up a fight. They thought for sure Daniel would start firing at them, or point his firearm at police in order to make them kill him, resulting in a suicide-by-cop situation. This was also when police discovered that Daniel was wearing a bulletproof vest. 
Daniel's shooting rampage took the lives of six innocent people, and severely injured two others. There were two people Daniel assumed he killed, but it wasn't until he was questioned by police that he learned they survived their injuries. Barbara Hawthorne was born on February 16, 1948, in Monroe, Wisconsin. She was 68 years old and had an associate's degree in computer science and a bachelor's degree in education. She lived in Illinois and taught special education classes for 10 years. In 1984, Barb decided to move to Battle Creek, where she started working at the Kellogg Cereal Company. She worked for the company for over 20 years before she decided to retire. Barb was described as being a free spirit, and she always wore a big smile. She loved the theater and going to live music shows. She also recycled anything and everything that came through her home. In the 1960s, she was a VISTA volunteer. VISTA stands for Volunteers in Service to America. She marched for her civil rights in the state of Alabama. Barb had two brothers and Abby, who was also in the vehicle that night. Abby was like an adopted granddaughter to Barb, even called her Grandma Barb. I would like to talk about my aunt, Barbara Hawthorne. There are many, many wonderful stories about Aunt Barbara, but today I would like to tell the court about her love and acceptance. Aunt Barbara did not have children of her own, but she loved her nieces and nephews and all our children fiercely. Mary Jo Nye was born on August 14, 1955, making her 60 years old on the day of her death. Mary Jo was the sixth born out of seven children and was raised on a family farm in Barada, Michigan. She graduated from Lakeshore High School and then went on to Western Michigan University and Michigan State University, pursuing a degree in education. Early on in her career in education, Mary Jo established an adult literacy program in Southwest Michigan. She was the president of the Literary Council of Calhoun County and was also one of the founding teachers of the Calhoun Community High School, which was an alternative education high school in Battle Creek. She helped countless students obtain their high school diplomas. After her retirement, Mary Jo enjoyed spending time with friends and family, traveling, and continuing to help students with their studies. She was known as an avid quilter and baker. Mary Lou Nye was born on September 5, 1953, in Lansing, Michigan. She was 62 years old and went by Mary. Mary Jo Nye was the other Mary's sister-in-law, and they enjoyed spending time together. In the five years before the shooting, Mary worked at a daycare located at the Emanuel Lutheran Church. Before she started working at the daycare, she worked at the Secretary of State for about 30 years, holding various positions. The Secretary of State is Michigan's equivalent to the Department of Motor Vehicles, or the DMV. She retired as Assistant Manager of Secretary of State, Benton Harbor Branch. Mary wed the love of her life, Christopher Nye, on December 20, 1975. She served her country as a member of the United States Air Force Reserve for 10 years. I've lost the woman I've married for 41 years. And I lost my little sister. The world has lost two women whose only goal in life was to take care of children. My wife worked in the daycare center and took care of little babies, nursed them, rocked them, whatever. And my sister was a teacher. She taught children 
who, lived, who came from shaky backgrounds. Some of them had juvenile records. Some of them just had bad, came from bad families, situations. And she was their teacher and their mentor. The world is lost to teachers. Thank you. Dorothy Judy Brown was born on April 11th, 1941 in Battle Creek, Michigan. She was 74 years old and went by the name Judy. Judy attended Hillsdale College and graduated from Western Michigan University. Before her retirement in 2015, Judy worked as a caseworker for the Area Agency on Aging in Burnham Brook and for Guardian Finance and Advocacy. Judy adored her two cats and her two sons. She was very close to her brother and spent time with him almost daily. She committed herself to helping people, something she thoroughly enjoyed. Judy was a member of the Unity Church in Battle Creek, where she was secretary of the board. My mom's death was a blow like no other. It completely knocked the wind out of me, deflated me to the core. Nothing can prepare someone to instantly fly cross-country unexpectedly to secure their mom's house and make arrangements for her remains and other urgent matters. Those who knew her all say that she was the sweetest, most caring, gentle person one could meet. And so again, I say to know that she faced her end in this way is just unthinkable. Richard Eugene Smith Jr., or Rich for short, was 53 years old on the day of the shooting. Rich worked as a pipe fitter for 30 years, spending most of his career at Pfizer. In the four years before the shooting, Rich was working as a construction manager for Jacobs Field Services of North America. Rich was born in Kalamazoo on June 9, 1962, and graduated from Portage Central High School in 1980. After high school, he moved to Colorado and attended Denver Automotive and Diesel College. In 1981, Rich moved back to Michigan. He and his wife Lori married on May 30, 1992. They went on to have two children, Tyler and Emily. Rich enjoyed riding motorcycles, especially his beloved Harley, ATVs, and dune buggies, as well as downhill skiing, snowmobiling, and jet skiing. He was a fantastic chef, known for his cheesy potatoes and his secret barbecue recipe that only he knew. Recently, Rich helped support the Girl Scouts of America by helping them learn a skill or trade. Rich's son Tyler was also a victim of Daniel's deadly massacre. Tyler was born in Kalamazoo on April 27, 1998, and at the time of his death, he was a senior at Matawan High School. He had recently attended the Van Buren Technology Center Marketing Entrepreneurship Program. Tyler's true passion, though, was soccer. He played his entire life starting at age 4 and reached the Premier League at the age of 14. He played goalie and forward for his high school, Matawan High School, as well as participated in numerous different travel soccer teams. Much like his father, Tyler enjoyed going to the sand dunes and doing anything that got his adrenaline pumping. He liked to stay up late, watch movies, and play video games with his cousins. During the summer months, he played beach volleyball with his sister, cousins, and friends. Tyler was a friend to anyone, and he had a huge heart. My brother was someone who always had your back no matter what. He wanted people to get along and to have fun. He loved to laugh, and he loved to make people laugh. My dad was someone who would give you the shirt off his back. 
He always knew what to say and when to say it. He had a laugh that was contagious, and he could make you laugh even if you didn't want to. My dad was caring, loving, and always tried to help people. He was a hard worker and did anything that was needed to provide for his family. He supported my brother, mom, and I in everything that we did. My dad loves cars, trucks, and everything in between. He loved watching my brother and I play sports. He loved music and listening to people harmonize. He always, he always helped my brother and I make projects for school because he was handy and, and he loved making things. There were two victims whose lives were spared and who later overcame their injuries. Tiana Carruthers was walking her daughter and friends to another friend's apartment when she was ambushed by Daniel. As stated before, she was shot in the left arm, right leg, left leg, and through her back, with a bullet lodging in her liver. She had to have numerous surgeries to mend her two broken thigh bones, a shattered upper arm bone, and damage to her liver. The bullet is still lodged in her liver today and will remain there as the surgery required to remove it was considered to be too life-threatening. Tiana was a hero that day. Not only did she sacrifice her body to shield the children she was with from the hail of bullets, but she was able to give the police an accurate description of the shooter, and even was able to identify the car he was driving. Later, Tiana was asked to identify Daniel in a lineup, which she was able to do. Two years, 11 months, and five days. I've tried to hate you. I've tried to hate you. I can't seem to hate you. I've already tried numerous times. I've cried a billion tears. Oh, how my gears turn. I pause, replay, and relive every single moment. Your pain is contagious. Your rage is heinous. You spread it like a disease. My little girl, Kanaya. Dorje, Adriana, Joy, Tiriana, and Selena. Their hearts were so pure, and now you've tainted them with your actions. We'll be right back after these short messages. To say Abby Koff is lucky to be alive is a massive understatement. She was shot in the head by Daniel, causing a part of her skull to be blown away. When the police were first on the scene of the shooting at the Cracker Barrel, they didn't even notice that Abby was in the vehicle. It wasn't until she made a noise that the officer spotted her on the floorboard of the vehicle. It was later revealed that Bob Hawthorne pushed Abby down to the floor when she heard the bullets, in an attempt to save Abby's life. Not only did Bob try and save Abby's life, but she also remained coherent enough to tell investigators Abby's parents' name, as well as their contact information, before dying from her wounds. Abby was loaded into an ambulance and on her way to the hospital when the officer said they didn't think she was going to make it. After arriving at the hospital, Abby flatlined. They walked us up to this room in the uh, ICU, and that's when I saw Abby for the first time. A couple hours later, she flatlined. The doctor started performing life-saving CPR on her, which is something no parent should ever have to see. Abby's mom, Vicky told the doctors to stop with the CPR. If it was her time to go, then they needed to let her go. We told them to let her go. If it was meant to be, it was meant to be. At that point, we started to say our goodbyes. In the meantime, it was already being reported on the news that Abby lost her life. Unfortunately, the uh, other female teenager, 14 years old, has passed away as well. 
What the media didn't know was that little Abby was still fighting for her life. At the hospital, her parents started saying their goodbyes. The nursing staff unhooked her from the ventilator and all of the other machines that were keeping her alive. Vicky was holding Abby's hand and put her head on Abby's chest, saying goodbye to her 14-year-old daughter. That is when Vicky heard the best noise she could have ever imagined. It was Abby's heartbeat. She was alive. Immediately, Vicky retrieved the doctors and nurses who were astounded that Abby was alive. They hooked her back up to the machines and pushed all sorts of buttons. They unhooked her from the ventilator machine, and they started hauling stuff out of the room. And they put a blanket up almost to her neck. At that point, we started to say our goodbyes. And I had my head on her chest, and I told her that I loved her. And so I heard something, and I told the nurse that I thought she had a heartbeat. And the nurse came over, and she checked her, and then at that point, the nurse said, holy she was smacking buttons on the wall, and people were flying back in. She was now in a coma, but she was alive. Abby stayed in a coma for many days, and she had many surgeries. The frontal right lobe of her brain was removed, and a plate was put in its place. After waking up from the coma, she was moved to the Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Abby had to learn how to do everyday normal tasks all over again. She had excruciating headaches and lost a lot of sensation on the left side of her body. Abby was at the rehabilitation hospital for months. She was transferred back to the hospital to have another surgery to replace the plate in her head due to an infection from the previous surgery. After this surgery, she was able to go home, but not long after she had to undergo yet another operation because of a skin infection that was related to her injuries. Abby doesn't really remember anything about the shooting, nor does she remember anything about her childhood. She also wishes that she could do cartwheels like she is told she used to enjoy doing, or ride a normal bike. Abby is back in high school and hopes to work with animals someday. Kalamazoo, Michigan is home to three different colleges. Western Michigan University is a large public university. Kalamazoo College is a private liberal arts college. And Kalamazoo Valley Community College, which is a two-year community college, while Kalamazoo has a college-like atmosphere, the suburbs of the town are very family-oriented. In 2010, Kalamazoo had a population of over 74,000 people. It is known for the Kalamazoo Mall, which was created in 1959 and was the first outdoor mall in the United States. The original home of Gibson Guitar Corporation was in Kalamazoo before the company gradually moved to Memphis, Tennessee and Bozeman, Montana in the 1980s. At one point in time, Kalamazoo was known as the Paper City due to a large number of paper mills. When the forests in West Michigan started getting logged out, the mills were eventually shut down. The town as a whole has a higher crime rate than the national average in the United States, and it is especially higher in the inner-city neighborhoods, but much lower in downtown and most of the southwest areas. Kalamazoo, where it's at in western Michigan, is just about halfway between Chicago and Detroit. It's sort of a bigger town that still has a small town feel. Kalamazoo City contains a lot of businesses, a lot of restaurants. The attraction to Kalamazoo, Michigan, is that it is a safe Midwestern town with those Midwestern values. The cost of living is good. You can buy a nice house, live in the country if you want, but you're close to the city. It's one of those ideal towns where parents dream about raising their families. 
After Daniel was picked up by the police, he was taken in for an interview. Daniel's interview was rather odd. Sometimes he would answer questions, while other times he would plead the fifth. Do you know how many people you killed tonight? I would like to just plead the fifth. Okay. Um, what would you like to talk about in here? I really don't want to talk about anything. The oddest statement of all, however, was when Daniel described to the detective why he did what he did. It was rather simple, actually. The devil made me do it. When asked to explain, Daniel said that a devil head popped up on the Uber app on his cell phone and took over his entire mind and body. The devil was inside him, telling him when to kill. He went on to describe that the screen on his iPhone was switching from red to black, and when the screen was black, the devil took over him and would start killing. Daniel also claimed not to remember anything about the shooting. The only time he showed any emotion at all was when he stated that he had shot a child. Other than that one moment, Daniel was emotionless. I know you've been searched, but just per protocol, we just had to search you again and all that, okay? Oh, we've been treated. I've been treated okay. What would you like to do right now? I, I'm not kind of just whatever you guys are going to do. You seem like a pleasant person. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate you being nice with you, me too. Listen, it's not our job to be rude. No. I mean, we're, we're human, we're too. Human just like you. How much sleep have we had in the last 24 hours? I think I've been going for probably more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Just... Uh, and I accelerated out the West Main Hill. And it was like... And I, I made this corner and I hit a car. And... A turn... And then it's like, turns to a complete stop. Mm -hmm. And then he bails out of the car. And I'm like, you got to your destination, sir. And then I just, I just took off as fast as I could go. I reached in, I grabbed my clock. And And I believe that I dumped the whole magazine there. I know I killed her. And I, I don't even... Why do, you, why do you assume that you killed her? Because how could you survive that many gunshots? The block jammed. During that? During that. And I cleared the jam to finish. And I walked up to this lady and asked her, I asked her if she could spare a dollar to make America great again. And she told me that she didn't have the dollar to spend. And I shot her. Mm -hmm. I remember that I shot a small person in the head. You say a small person with me? I can turn a child. I'm not a killer, and this is what I'm, I, I, and I, I, and I know that I have killed. Yeah, you understand, so you know that. What's the connection between all these people? Is there any, any connection for you between any of these people? No. If you guys only knew. Okay. You would, it would blow your mind. Is Uber U-B-E-R? Mm-hmm. You just recently been joined up with them. Yeah. Am I okay to talk? Yeah. About what happened? Yeah. I know that you guys are going to have a hard time believing this, but it literally took over mind and body. The Uber app? Yes. I really didn't even see what the, what the symbol, I, I just tapped it. And then it was like a devil head that popped up. It was some sort of, like, horned 
that button, and that's where all the problems went after that. Daniel grew up in Greenfield, Indiana, and moved to Kalamazoo when he was in high school because his father started a job at the GM plant that was located there. Born on June 22, 1970, Daniel was 45 years old at the time of the shooting. Daniel graduated from Comstock High School in 1989 and later decided to take classes at the Kalamazoo Valley Community College. Daniel obtained an associate's degree in, shockingly, criminal justice. He had hopes and aspirations to be a police officer, but when he couldn't find a police officer job close to home, he decided to get involved in the insurance business. He was in his late 20s when he decided to change his career path. For as long as anyone could remember, Daniel always had a passion for cars and knew a lot about cars. When he decided to get into the insurance business, his knowledge of auto bodywork helped him with his job. Starting in the late 90s, he worked for State Farm until 2001 when he decided to work for Progressive Insurance. He worked for Progressive until 2011. At the time of the shooting, Daniel was working as an insurance adjuster for the Michigan Appraisal Company located in Kentwood, Michigan. Daniel grew up in a much different home than a lot of the shooters we have covered. He was raised as an only child whose parents were very supportive. Daniel participated on the football, track, and wrestling teams, and was even the co-captain of his football team. His parents never missed a game or match and were always involved in Daniel's life. His dad even served as a scoutmaster for his Boy Scout group. Daniel was a good student, worked hard, and always seemed to have a good attitude. Daniel married his wife in 1995, and they went on to have two children, a boy and a girl. He appeared to be a good family man and was always there for his family when he was needed. Daniel was quiet and seemed to avoid confrontation whenever possible. He was very calm and soft-spoken, and he enjoyed taking his German Shepherd to the dog park. In his spare time, he liked to shoot guns outside of his home for hours at a time. Some of his neighbors later said that Daniel would sometimes spend all day long shooting his guns. He also enjoyed going to different gun shows and gun ranges. As he grew older, his love for cars never changed. Some of his most prized possessions were his Hummer and Chevrolet Camaro. Daniel lived an ordinary life, with an ordinary family. Some former co-workers said that he was quick to anger and seemed to have an off-side to him. But other than that, there was nothing obvious in his past that would indicate he would do anything like this, causing such a tragic event. He had what some would say, a perfect life. A wife he loved very much a son who was 15 years old at the time of the shooting, and a daughter who was 10. He had a solid job making about $50,000 a year. Finances were never a huge issue in his life, or something he and his wife had to stress about. They lived life comfortably. On January 25, 2016, Daniel started working for the rideshare program called Uber. He decided to start giving rides to people while making some extra cash on the side. He was saving money to take his family to Disney World. He even passed the Uber background check. On the Monday after the shooting, Daniel was arraigned on six counts of murder, two counts of assault with intent to commit murder, and eight counts of using a firearm in the commission of a felony. 
Initially, he pled insanity, and the judge ordered that he undergo a competency exam. The judge ordered the competency exam on March 3, 2016. Just over a month later, on April 22, 2016, Daniel was ruled competent to stand trial. The prosecutors handling the case, Jeff Gettig and Jeff Williams, started preparing for what would be a long and difficult trial. While the attorneys were preparing for Daniel's trial, investigators listened to the phone calls he made while in jail. His mom insisted that he plead guilty to the crimes to save the victims from the burden of a trial. Daniel refused and expressed his frustration with the prosecutor's office, saying that they weren't offering him any type of plea deal. I'm very sorry for all the trouble that I've caused. I just wanted you to know that uh, they won't uh, allow me to respectfully bow out or take anything. They want to have a trial no matter what with live coverage. I just, I just, I just wanted you to know that that it's 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 not driven by me. It's and it's not driven by my my you know my defense attorney. It's you know they they simply it seems to be something between the judge and the prosecutor that they're that they're wanting to go forward with it and they they want to they find a thing allowing it to be filmed like the OJ trial. Why don't we just get a red and white circus tent and put it up in front of the courthouse and get a couple rings? Finally, on the day the trial was set to begin, Daniel pled guilty to all 16 counts. Your Honor, Mr. Dalton will be pleading guilty to all counts in counts 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11. He will be entering a plea to first-degree premeditated murder. In counts 13 and 15, he will be entering a guilty plea to the count as charged, assault with intent to murder, and he will also be entering a guilty plea to the associated uh, felony firearm charges. You're doing this voluntarily of your own free will. Yes, I've wanted this for quite a while. The investigators continued to listen to his recorded jail phone calls. He spoke mostly to his mother even telling her how he was tired of sitting in the county jail and was almost looking forward to being transferred to prison. On February 5th, 2019, almost three years after he committed the murder, Daniel stood before Kalamazoo County Circuit Court Judge Alexander C. Lipsy, where he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. Many of the victims and victims' families spoke at his sentencing, asking him, Why? Why did he have to take their loved ones away? This is a question that many people still ask today, and a question we may never get the answer to. I'm Penny Hawthorne, sister-in-law of Barbara Hawthorne. I'm Cassandra Bear, and I'm the niece of Barbara Hawthorne. Uh, my name is Lori Smith. Richard was my husband, and Tyler was my son. I'm Jeff Reynolds, and I'm the son of Judy Brown. I'm Emily Lemmer. I am the sister of Tyler, and I am the daughter of Richard Smith. I'm Laura Hawthorne. I am Barbara's niece. Christopher C. Nye, husband of Mary L. Nye, and brother of Mary Jo Nye. My name is Tiana Carruthers, survivor of Jason Dalton's crimes.
Shortly after the shootings, Daniel's wife filed for divorce, and she has attempted to move on with her life, along with their children. While we always stress that if you see something, to say something, sometimes there aren't any clues at all as to what's going on in someone's head. When Daniel's wife noticed that he seemed down the couple days leading up to the shooting, he just told her that he was tired and she believed him, thinking it was just a phase and he would come out of it. Thank you for listening to Active Shooter the Podcast. Make sure to check us out on social media. We have a discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Active Shooter, the podcast discussion group. You can find us on Instagram at Active the Podcast and on Twitter at Podcast Active. Thank you and be safe.